Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 15. We're continuing our study in this wonderful Old Testament narrative book about the beginning of the kings of the nation of Israel. And as we look at chapter 15 tonight, we want to look at the Lord, the Lord's d- delight in wholehearted obedience, really by a negative example in disobedience of King Saul. And as we read this, you may be wondering, didn't we just read a chapter like this that Saul disobeyed? And you're right. Chapter 13 is the other powerful chapter that we looked at long ago that has a famous incident of King Saul disobeying the Lord. And this one is the culmination of that one and this one and of Saul's kingship and the reason that the Lord rejected him as king. It's a pretty long chapter, but I want us to read it all, and then we will look at it. Let us give heed to God's word, 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Talaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. 
I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And Saul Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. 
chapter 15, which we've just read, comes to us after the author's summary of Saul's kingship. We saw that last week at the end of chapter 14 in verses 47 through 52, which was a brief but really a relatively positive summary of Saul's kingship and his military victories. But chapter 15 is given, as we might even say, an epilogue to Saul's kingship. Now, we know that Saul's kingship doesn't end immediately. It's going to be carried on for some time, as we read in 1 Samuel till the end of the book, as David is anointed and raised up and interacts with King Saul. And so nothing happens immediately at the end of chapter 15 in this regard. But this epilogue, so to speak, which isn't necessarily in chronological order here from chapter 14, um, gives us almost this to say, we might say, that above everything else, we get insight from this chapter into what Saul's kingship was like, what really defined Saul's reign as king. In other words, if you want to really understand Saul and his rule, you must be clear on what happened here in chapter 15. And like I said, it's very similar to chapter 13 where Saul disobeyed. And what will strike us as we read this chapter, as we think through it, was that Saul, we could say, was not a king after God's own heart. We know that's going to be the phrase that defines the king who's going to follow him, this neighbor who is better than he is, this young boy, this young man, David, who's going to be a man after God's own heart, not without sin, obviously, but fundamentally different in his walk with God. Saul's walk with God is in this chapter seen to be apparently superficial and external We see him concerned more with his own reputation and his own agenda and his own glory than with the one who is described as the glory of Israel, Yahweh, the true God. Saul's not concerned with that as much. He's concerned with his own concerns. And we see in this chapter an absence of wholehearted obedience to the Lord. And then we see a lack of genuine and true repentance about his sin. We could say it's a case study in God's calling for every believer to live before God in growing wholehearted obedience, which pleases God more than religious ceremony wholehearted obedience that springs from genuine faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. That's the theme that we want to see, and we're going to look at the chapter in three main points, looking at each each part. First, Saul's half-hearted obedience in verses 1 through 9. Saul's half-hearted obedience. We see in verse 1 the prophet Samuel coming to Saul with this command from the Lord. And throughout this chapter, we're going to see repeated this idea of the word of the Lord. One of the primary considerations that the king was given when Saul was anointed king is that he would hear and obey the voice, the word of the Lord. 
And here, the word of the Lord comes concerning the Amalekites. Now, we're told a little bit about them here, but it's pretty foreign to our ears, isn't it, what God commands Saul to do, to utterly destroy them. And there's this phrase that appears a number of times throughout the chapter that we see in verse 3, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction. That's really a technical word there. It's been translated in different ways. Devote to destruction all that they have and all that they are, really. It's uh, what's been called the ban. It's a reflection of holy warfare. Amalek is mentioned in Genesis 36, verse 12, who is, is described as a descendant of Esau. And from Amalek were descended the Amalekites, who have this long history of opposition and persecution of God's people in the Old Testament. We see in Exodus 17 that they are the very first nation to attack and oppose Israel after God's people come out of Egypt, and they are weary and they're stragglers, and uh, the Amalekites fall upon them, and there is this war that goes on. And there in Exodus 17, 14, we, we see God promise Moses in these words, I will utterly blot out the memory of, Al- of Amalek from under heaven. And that's repeated in Deuteronomy 25 again. And now, after about 300 years, the time has finally come for God to fulfill his promise that he is going to do this during Saul's reign through the agency of his holy nation, Israel, under the reign of Saul, that it was time to devote them to destruction. And later on in chapter 15 of verse 18, we see that that they're called sinners. It's not that everyone else in the world wasn't sinners as well, but their sin, as it were, has become ripe before the Lord, crying out for his judgment. Now, we find in the Old Testament that God judges people groups and cities and nations. It's not anything unusual. God is always the God of judgment. And all of these temporal earthly judgments foreshadow and point ahead to the final judgment of God, the eternal judgment of God. And we don't really have a problem with a lot of the Old Testament judgment that that God carries out, as it were, unilaterally. We know that there's Noah's flood, God's greatest judgment on the earth. And there were the judgments of God, things like the fire and brimstone that he sent on Sodom and Gomorrah or the plagues that befell Egypt, and then the Red Sea, the judgment on Pharaoh's army. And there are lots of examples in the prophets about God's judgment falling on nations by more conventional warfare, bringing another nation to judge a nation. That happens to Israel and Judah as well. God judges his own people that way, and things like famines. But probably modern people have the most problems with holy warfare, because it's carried out by human beings. And one author says it this way, moments like this in the pages of the Old Testament must not be avoided. They must not, of course, be lifted out of context and caricatured. Sometimes such terrible biblical incidents are condemned as genocide or ethnic cleansing. 
This is to measure the events by modern moral categories while disregarding the Bible's own evaluation of them. These episodes should remind us that God always has been and still is, quote, the judge of all the earth, Genesis 18:25, who only does what is just and right. Now, I'm not going to take any more time this evening talking about holy war and how we are to look at that. But this is the command that comes to King Saul to carry out this holy war where uniquely, compared to any other kind of conventional warfare, defensive warfare, or uh, offensive warfare, where God always says, destroy everything because it's all being judged by God. Now, that's not how regular warfare was done. Usually, the soldiers and others would get the spoils of war. That is not to be the case. And the prophet Samuel is very clear to, to spell that out. Do not spare them. Everyone, everything is to be destroyed. All the animals are to be destroyed. That is the nature of of being devoted to destruction. It's like these are given over to God and judged by him. Well, that is an interesting command, and Saul went about carrying it out. We see that is an interesting side note here in verses 5 and 6 and following where in his desire to fairly carry this out, Saul even risks his warfare, his attack in some way, by warning this group called the Kenites, who acted favorably to the Israelites in the past, by warning them about what he is doing so they come out from among the Amalekites. It's an interesting side note here. So Saul is apparently seeking to carry out the command of God in an honest and true way. And we see that they that eventually in verse 7, Saul defeats the Amalekites But, in verses 8 and following, he spares the king and he spares, he and the people spare the animals, at least the best of the animals. But it's noted that all that was despised, verse 9, all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Interesting, isn't it? It was what we might call half-hearted obedience at that point. Obedience in the way that it was convenient for Saul to be obedient. You know, in Old Testament Israel, when you brought your sacrifice, you weren't supposed to bring an animal that was defective or lame or something wrong. You might think, well, good, I can offer this one because this one's going to die by next year anyway. I'll take him and sacrifice him. That was not permitted. You were supposed to bring the best of your flocks. Someone, some animal that was without spot. So Saul's obedience seemed to have limits to it. He was not obedient in the most crucial point of all, that everything was be, to be devoted to destruction. And we're left at the end of verse 9 thinking to ourselves, how much did Saul understand that he was disobeying? How much did he understand this? Or had the deceitfulness of sin simply blinded him? Well, the example of Saul is a warning 
against the deceitfulness of sin, isn't it, in all of our hearts? As we think about half-hearted obedience, we shouldn't go too far in putting Saul in a different category than the tendencies of our own hearts. The warning against the deceitfulness of sin and our need to be regularly turning away from external, superficial, outward obedience to God's word when really we're not really obeying at all. We're just doing it in the ways that it's convenient for us to obey. A couple years ago, we had the marriage seminar seminar. What did you expect here? Maybe some of you were here for this. It was a Paul Tripp seminar, and it's an interesting title to a seminar about marriage. The title, What Did You Expect? And um, if you were at that six or seven hours worth of teaching that Paul Tripp did as he walked around up here in the front of this church with this whole sanctuary full, he kept pointing us to the deceitfulness of our sins and how it comes up comes out in the closest relationships of life. He kept pointing us to the fact that it's very easy in conflict with your spouse or with anyone to think about how much you are right, to think about how your argument is right and how your attitude is really probably more right than the other person you might think. And that the other person is wrong or is sinning against you, to be highly sensitized to the other person's sin and failure and wrongness while being completely blind to your own sin. I remember at the end of that conference, walking out to the big crowds that were in the gathering space and bumping into a missionary couple that we support as a church who are about our age and And they were carrying these stacks of CDs of the weekend because they said, I think the wife said, we're getting these for all of our our adult kids. They have five adult kids who are all married or were in the process of getting married at the time. And they said, we really want them to be aware of the problem of what did you expect? You know, powerful conference. It's interesting when Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 and 13, talks about the danger of deception in our own hearts. It it talks about it in this way. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." He's really talking about the ministry of one anothering in the body of Christ, husbands and wives, parent and children, Bible study groups, men's ministry, women's ministry, the counsel we give each other regularly in the life of the church, how we all need that so that we're not hardened by sin's deceitfulness. If left to ourselves, it's very easy for us to be led astray in that way. And so we need to be exhorted. And that's one of the regular functions of the, of the corporate public ministry of God's word that all of us sit under the formative discipline of the church, which is receiving the preached word of God that speaks to all of our hearts. God uses his word in that way. Saul needed the prophetic word of Samuel. As we'll see, he resists it. 
But we also likely, also likewise, can be easily deceived. And so we need the regular intake of the Word of God individually and corporately. Well, that's Saul's half-hearted obedience. Next we see, as our second main point, Saul's rationalizing and minimizing of sin. This is verses 10 to 21, Saul's rationalizing and minimizing of his sin. I ended our last point with the question, did Saul really know he was disobeying? And my answer is, I think he did. And it comes out here as we see Samuel confront him. But in verse 10, we find that the word of the Lord comes to Samuel. We're not sure where he is. And you can imagine Samuel probably spent a sleepless night agonizing over what has happened to the kingship in Israel. Um, Because the Lord says in verse 11, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. Doesn't say exactly what he what he was concerned about. Clearly, there was a complex of things. Saul's disobedience, what's going to happen to the kingdom. Samuel was kind of a reluctant participant from the beginning of making Saul king, and now look what's happened. This offense to the glory of God and Saul's disobedience, all of these things probably went together in Samuel's mind. And and verse 12 says that Samuel rose up early to meet Saul in the morning. So after a sleepless night of crying out to the Lord, Samuel gets up and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Now it's just a quick remark there, but see how the focus of Saul was already setting up a monument for himself. Moses set up a monument in Exodus 17 after the battle with the Amalekites there, but it was a monument to the Lord and the glory of God. Saul apparently set up a monument pretty fast for himself. And then verse 13, we see the beginning of this great conflict unfold where the prophet of God comes and confronts the king that was anointed Verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now let's stop right there. Before Samuel says anything, what is Saul doing? Don't you see a defensive posture immediately? Even while he's saying hello, he's saying, Blessed be you, Samuel. You know, he's got his religious language going here strongly. I have kept the commandment of the Lord. Is that usually the first thing you say to somebody when they come to you? It just, I think it shows, it gives us an inkling about Saul's heart. And Samuel said, and there's great irony here, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? He hears animals. He hears these animals that were supposed to be devoted to destruction. Now, there's really a play on words here. In the beginning of the chapter, there's a repeated, a, a repeated phrase that doesn't come out in the English translation where it's the sound of the word of the Lord, the sound of the word of the Lord that is translated the word of the Lord in our English translations. But here, that same word, the sound, 
that's translated bleeding or lowing. It's just the word sound. There was the sound of the word of the Lord, and Saul disobeyed that, and now Samuel comes and hears the sound of these animals showing Saul's disobedience. Now, what's Saul's explanation? Verse 15. They, hmm, it wasn't him, it wasn't we, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. All right, it's very convenient the way he phrases this, isn't it? Doesn't it sound like our defensiveness at times? How we kind of spin the truth a little bit and shade the truth and exaggerate a little bit to put ourselves in a better light. It happens to us almost immediately without even trying to do it. He focuses on they, the people, are the ones who spared these animals. Uh, You know, he didn't have anything to do with it, although in the inspired text, in verse 9, it said, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and so on. But then there's this second line of defense at the end of verse 15. We've done this to sacrifice to the Lord your God. We've saved these animals for a religious purpose, to offer them to the Lord. I'm sure they had other purposes for them in the meantime and uh, to use them and to eat them and so forth, but basically there's a religious reason here. We see this further on in verses 20 and 21 when Samuel presses his case upon Saul where Saul says to him, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep, and oxen, and so forth, to sacrifice them. By the way, notice how Saul slips in the mention of the fact that Agag is still alive in verse 20. We're not sure if Samuel knew that or not. Well, back in verse 17 then, we see Samuel say, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Saul is rationalizing his sin. He's minimizing his sin. He seems to be saying, it's other people's fault. If it, if it did occur, it's their fault. And for Saul to say this, commentators are not united about what, what this means, though you are little in your own eyes. It could be that that's referring back to the initial choosing and anointing of Saul as king. When remember, he said he's from the smallest tribe of Benjamin, and he's from the smallest clan, and so forth. And then when he finally was chosen by Lot as king, He was hiding among the baggage train. He was hiding among the suitcases and everything. And so he was uh, hesitant and shy. Is that what's being referred to, that um, he began in this way? It's possible, but more likely, Samuel's bringing this out as a, a way of saying Saul is excusing himself from responsibility though you are little in your own eyes. In other words, as though you think that you don't have 
much sway as king that you couldn't have stopped the people from keeping these animals and so forth. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. You are the king. You are the Lord's anointed one. Don't give me these rationalizations and these minimizings. Saul was focused only on defending himself, excusing his sin, claiming not to have sinned. And then finally, uh, when he is confronted and he can't resist it anymore, in verse 24, we'll see he says, I have sinned, I have transgressed. And we're going to see what his reaction is to being rejected as king. Problem of the deceitfulness of sin And Saul's example should have us ask, how do we avoid being like that? Well, the answer is having a heart that's soft to the Lord. The Psalm 51 kind of heart that says, Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And also we would say, as we look at Saul's heart and as we compare it to the temptations that we face to be the same way, We need to bring into practice what the Bible calls mortifying sin. In other words, when we repent, we've already sinned. We need to turn away from that sin and ask forgiveness and search our hearts. But mortification of sin means putting sin to death. And you can mortify your sin before you even commit sin. In other words, mortification of sin is recognizing the attitudes and desires of our hearts are, so to speak, the soil that sin grows in. Saul needed to look at his life and look at his heart and say, why is he so concerned about giving in to what the people may want? If they they originated the desire to save all these, the best of the sheep and the cattle and so forth, well, was he seeking for political causes? for his own reputation, for his own honor and glory, for peace in his kingdom, so to speak. There are lots of motivations that we all have, and a lot of them are not always right. Mortification of sin calls us to focus in on those things that lead us to sin, those wrong desires, those desires for things that may be good in and of themselves, but not submitted to God, they bring us down. Saul needed to mortify his desires that were wrong for the applause and the praise of what the people might have wanted and sought to please the only audience that counts, and that is the Lord. Well, this brings us to our final point, the grievous consequences of Saul's sin. The grievous consequences of Saul's sin in verses 22 to the end. In verses 22 and 23, we see if it's in your Bible, it might be in a poetic form. We see Samuel as God prophets, prophets set forward God's verdict on Saul's disobedience. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. It's not talking about obedience as the way to be saved. It's talking about for a believer that God desires a heart of wholehearted obedience to him and not relying on mere 
ceremonial rituals in order to please the Lord. They're fine if they're commanded by God. The sacraments are commanded by God. We're to carry those out. Those are religious ceremonies. And then verse 23 describes the very nature of disobedience in this way. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, or some old translations say witchcraft. And it's ironic, isn't it, that by the time we get to the end of 1 Samuel, King Saul is in the witch of Endor's cave, seeking guidance, seeking divination from her instead of from the Lord. And then it says, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, the arrogance of having a heart that disobeys the Lord. A presumptive, arrogant heart is as idolatry. And then he gives the sentence in the final sentence, Final verse, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So there it is. Samuel declares that God has rejected Saul as king, a very weighty declaration. And so finally in verse 24, after the serious consequences are given to him, Saul says, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. But even as soon as he says this, there's this idea, I have sinned, but, you know, does anyone ever, has anyone ever apologized to you like that? You know, yes, I was wrong, but you know what you did? That probably doesn't feel like an apology, right? Because when someone immediately begins to justify and defend themselves and maybe accuse back, it just isn't really felt as heartfelt apology, I sinned, I transgressed because this and that, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. And immediately, this is far from Psalm 51, isn't it? (laughs) Immediately he begins to intercede with Samuel and say, please uh, come with me that I may bow before the Lord. He's talking about going to do a public formal sacrifice of some type. Come with me as I bow before the Lord. It would look strange if you came here and then you didn't show up at the religious event we're about to do. The people would all say, where's Samuel? What's wrong? Please, you know, for outward appearances, come and do this. And Samuel says he won't do that at first. And he begins to walk away and Saul grabbed his robe and it tore to some extent. And there's this ironic declaration that Samuel sees the torn robe and says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Samuel doesn't know who that is yet, but it's going to be David. And also the glory of Israel will not lie. He will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, as we see the consequences of all this unfold, Saul's kingship is declared to be rejected by God. There's this interesting repetition in chapter 15 of God regretting, or in the old translations, God repenting. In verse 10, God regrets that he had made Saul king. And then again, at the very end of the chapter, verse 35, God regrets that he had made Saul king. But here, interestingly, it says that God does does not regret or repent or some translation, the NIV has grieved. 
Now, what are we to make of this? Is there a blatant contradiction in this one chapter that the author couldn't keep track of what words he was using to describe God, and so he's describing God in two different ways? Well, this recalls Genesis 6, at the time of the flood, when God repented that he regretted that he had made mankind. And 29 times in the Old Testament, that's the phrase that's used to describe God. We're not going to go into it. We're at the conclusion of this now. But clearly, the author is using this to say there is a sense in which God is grieved by the disobedience of King Saul. Just like in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is twice referred to as being grieved by believers' sins. So it's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit. But Verse 29 is telling us that God will not lie or have regret in the sense that God's purposes do not change and nothing takes God by surprise. What's happened to King Saul does not take God by surprise. He is accomplishing all his holy will. And it was his purposes, part of his purpose to eventually reject Saul as king. It's part of the unfolding plan of salvation. Saul has done evil in the sight of the Lord. And there are serious consequences. God has rejected him as king. And we see at the end in verses 34 and 35 that Samuel and Saul don't see each other again for the rest of Saul's life till the day he dies. He sees him then. But Saul will no longer receive the word of the Lord through the prophet. What a grievous judgment has fallen upon him. And so Samuel is grieved, and the Lord is grieved in some sense. Well, what do we learn from all of this? Just two points of application as we close. Biblical faith is what bears fruit in wholehearted obedience. Biblical faith consists in believing God's promises and then out of a heart of faith and joy in God, obeying God's command. And in this sense, the New Testament can speak in a number of spots as the obedience of faith. Those two are so closely linked together, the obedience that springs from faith, or we could say faith is the first type of obedience, to believe in Jesus Christ and to be saved, and out of that comes a life of obedience to God. Our final application, thanks be to God that Jesus is God's true and righteous King. And let us rejoice in the King who fully obeyed on our behalf. If you want to follow it up, read Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 5. Compare Saul's disobedience to Jesus who learned obedience by the things that he suffered, who suffered to the point of death for his people's sins, who suffered what he didn't deserve for us, very different than King Saul. Do you see the beauty of the life of Jesus, the true King, the beauty of his obedience on our behalf. It's looking by faith to Jesus that enables us to see our sin for what it is and to turn from it by the power that Jesus Christ gives every day. Let us pray. Father, please complete your work in your time and in your way. We know that's only when we go to glory through death or when you return But Lord, please encourage us in a a backhanded kind of way from seeing this negative example and seeing your call to wholehearted devotion to you. Let us quickly repent. Let us quickly turn to you. Let us rely on the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, give us your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.